0: You're listening to KCBP Community Radio on 95.5 FM and streaming on kcbpradio.org.
1: This is Women of the Valley, where we examine the issues, stories, organizations, and people important to women in our community. We're your hosts, Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. Today, we're speaking with Jasmine Woodall. Jasmine works at Stanislaus State University as an Administrative Support Coordinator One. She graduated cum laude from Stanislaus State with a Bachelor's of Music in Choral Education. Honors earned include multiple semesters on the Dean's List, Outstanding Student Achiever, and Outstanding Senior. Welcome Jasmine and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Hi Linda, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
1: Where were you born, and how would you describe your childhood?
0: So I was born and raised in Modesto, California. I did spend a few years of my early life in Anchorage, Alaska with some family. That was about three to four years before I came back to Modesto again, and then I have been living in Turlock since 2014. And as far as how I describe my childhood, I think at the time it seemed normal. But of course, looking back, I acknowledge that it was in fact a bit of a difficult childhood. I primarily put my focus into school and extracurriculars. It just kind of helped to normalize
1: everything. Who and what has inspired and influenced you in your life?
0: My mother, my teachers, and my friends. So my mother, I know that she has been through quite a bit of trauma and obstacles in her life while constantly trying to help others, even when it does hurt her. I learned a lot from her as far as being selfless, but also needing to know at the end of the day, you need to take care of yourself. As far as teachers, and that's including coaches and and other mentors that have crossed my path, they have always been extremely dedicated, caring, supportive, and understanding. Mm -hmm. And that just absolutely changed my life and had a a huge impact on me. I always enjoyed being seen for my academic accomplishments. The teachers that I spent more time with and was closer with, they never really made me feel different or singled out. They always saw the best in me. And that really helped me to see the best in myself. And then as far as my friends, uh, especially my best friend, they are absolutely loving and supportive. You know, I see everybody on their own self-help journeys and, I appreciate all of the insight from different perspectives that I get from them so I I don't really ever worry that my friends aren't being honest with me or aren't telling me how it is I feel like I can always trust them to
1: help keep me honest when did you start singing in performance I
0: started singing in elementary school I did a choir class you know that was my first choir class I really enjoyed the experience the teacher was wonderful I'm sure she could tell how much I enjoyed it as that kind of influenced some of the songs she would have us sing. I remember her picking a song specifically because it had my name in it. You know, it was um, part of the multicultural aspect of the class. And so it was very, it really meant a lot to me. And then in middle school, I did choir for one year. And that was absolutely wonderful. But it wasn't until high school that I really got involved in music and choir and, you know, ensembles. And in my sophomore year, I auditioned and was accepted into a women's cappella ensemble at the school. Oh. That just absolutely changed my life. It was uh, Viking Singers at Johansson High School. So once I joined that, I joined the intermediate chorus. I, I did, you know, a few auditions for solos. And, you know, it was very out of character for me to be okay with all that attention and, you know, strive to put myself in the spotlight. That's, it kind of gave me a platform to do those things. And uh, my senior year, I auditioned for the Honor Choir. Um, And I got into the local level as well as the state level. And that was, you know, an extreme accomplishment for me, especially knowing where I came from as far as the fear of performing in front of crowds. That was an audition I had to do by myself with total strangers. So that was when I first got into
1: really into performance. Would you say you had been shy before you started performing?
0: Definitely. I, I think anybody who knew me as a as a child would tell you I was very quiet. Uh, and that's not to say I couldn't talk to people. I just did not. <laughs> um, so I was a very quiet kid. I just didn't really like having a lot of attention on me. I, I didn't notice how much I did struggle with anxiety and social anxiety. And just I would try to avoid situations that put me out there. Yeah. So being in choir and ensembles and trying to do shows that helped me work around that and so if I needed to do any public speaking I would still be very nervous but because I felt comfortable singing in front of people the speaking became easier.
1: (laughs) How and when did you decide to seriously study music? I decided to
0: study music my senior year of high school. I had applied to and was accepted to UOP as a psychology major but during a choir trip During my senior year, I had a conversation with the choir teacher, Jennifer Perrier, and she just, I don't know, I felt like in the conversation a light bulb went off in my head. She encouraged me to reach out to Dr. Daniel Afonso at Stan State, and he helped me with a late application as a choral education major. And I was extremely grateful to both of them. And I'm really glad that that is the route that I decided to go. This was the right path
1: for me. What do you think and feel when you sing for an audience? I
0: tend to be an overthinker. So especially in my early studies of music and performance, I put a lot of pressure on myself and focus on being right, you know, over being connected. But during my years of voice lessons with Sandra Bangachea, she really helped me get more in touch with the vulnerability of performance. So instead of going out there and thinking, this is what that interval is and this is this count and counting in your head and, oh, this pronunciation was wrong. I tried so hard and it took a lot of work and a lot of years of practice to pull myself away from the pressure of being right and Mm -hmm. allowing myself to be more connected to the music to whoever I'm performing with, to whoever I'm performing for.
1: Jasmine, what are some of the challenges you've faced?
0: I have been manipulated. I have been violated and mistreated by trusted authority figures in in childhood, especially. I struggle with generalized anxiety, depression, dissociation, and just in general, Trying to come to terms with my identity and and still figuring out who I am. You know, when you're 24, it's, I just feel like every few years you are genuinely, really deeply rethinking who you are and what you are and who
1: you want to be. You've told me you love to read. What are some of the books that have really moved you, taught you important lessons, or inspired you?
0: I did say that I love to read. I So in that conversation, I believe I was talking about my love of and almost obsession with reading in mostly elementary and a little still in middle school. I was a big fan of a lot of your kind of classic young adult fantasies, Ender's Game and Aragon and Guardians of Cahool, where the protagonist is a kid or a teenager. And I feel that it was really important for me to read those stories and feel like everything was so expansive and inclusive and the role that my imagination was allowed to play in it. I just feel like it offered a safe escape for me and following those characters on their journey really helped me to process, you know, emotions that I had or experiences that I maybe went through. But with that said, I, I noticed looking back that not a lot of those books had black lead protagonists. So mm-hmm. at the time I didn't really notice it because for me, I'm used to watching main characters that don't look like me, that don't necessarily sound like me or act like me. Or, But I will say that I'm sure it would have changed the way that I felt about myself growing up had I read more books that I felt truly reflected
1: me. What do you appreciate about this part of the Central Valley where we live?
0: I absolutely love the level of support that the Central Valley has for arts and arts education, and education itself. this The sense of community and the way that we express ourselves through art and the way that we encourage others to do the same.
1: What would you change about this area?
0: I am not sure what I would change specific to only this area. I only say that because a lot of change that I want to see is not just a local problem. I just feel like as a whole, we tend to treat symptoms instead of problems. We continue allowing income inequality to grow and, and we ignore how much more difficult your life can be when you are a part of a minority group, or especially when you're part of multiple disenfranchised groups. But with that said, I do see us making progress and I appreciate some of the local politicians that are advocating for change. But one of the things we really need to do is listen more to these groups that are struggling. We need to hear them, and we need to implement change that will help them.
1: You're listening to Women of the Valley, and our guest today is Jasmine Woodall. Since the killing by police of George Floyd, a Black man in Minneapolis, a lot of my white friends and I are wondering, what can we do? What would you suggest, Jasmine?
0: In my opinion, the first thing is to really lean into your discomfort. And I don't just mean your anger or anything like that, I mean your actual discomfort. Has somebody called you privileged or racist? Have you been experiencing guilt or shame or helplessness given everything that has been happening? Any of those feelings that you have, that's just a fraction of what black people have been dealing with since this country was founded. And the foundation of this country was built on the enslavement of black people. In no way am I trying to invalidate those feelings that people may be having when, you know, they're called out for their privilege or they're told to check their privilege or they're being called racist or anything like that. Those feelings are definitely real. It's okay to feel bad. The one thing you cannot do is allow those feelings to overwhelm you Mm. and lead you to just look the other way. Or shrug this off because you feel like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do to change this, or because you feel like, how can they attack me when I'm being an ally? It's not about attacking you, it's about trying to educate you, it's about trying to tell you what has been happening. As far as steps you can take, I would say the first step is to listen. The next step is to educate yourself, to question yourself, and to take action. So, as far as listening, I i am only shocked that people are still shocked by this. This has not been a secret. This hasn't been kept completely under wraps. These are things that Black people have been openly stating this entire time. We've been talking about these injustices. We've been talking about systemic racism. We've been talking about discrimination. But it's not until it directly affects certain people that are not a part of the Black community that it gains more traction. You see that with other movements when you see, you know, with the Me Too movement, when you see people and women standing up against assault and harassment and rape, when they're standing up against those things, you still have women that say, I've never had that experience as Mm. if that somehow changes what other people are experiencing. White people have the privilege of being able to just ignore race. They don't have to acknowledge it. So when Black people are pointing it out, specific to these injustices and inequalities, it can be easy to feel like, well, it's Black people that are always talking to me about race, so they're the ones caught up in race. Whereas the rest of the U.S. has moved on. I mean, slaves were emancipated, right? We have affirmative action. But when we say it's not enough, it's because we are still being targeted, punished, and murdered because of the color of our skin. Not because we're greedy and we want a free pass to do and act as we please, and we want handouts or anything like that. Those are all false narratives. So the next step I mentioned was educating yourself. We need training, funding, and incentives for those who have power. When people are in, in positions of power are incentivized to do bad things, they're gonna do bad things. You know, if you think about what what is it that prevents victims or witnesses from coming forward. We know why. We know that they're scared. We talk about women not reporting rape immediately or too late or, well, how are they still bothered by it? Why didn't they do anything about it before? There are so many things in place that prevent victims and people who can support those victims from coming forward. So think of police officers. What incentive do they have to step forward and report their fellow officers? The incentive of because it's the right thing to do is clearly not enough. Those people that are called the good ones, the good cops, they are in danger. They are not safe. They get targeted when they try to help us. So what happens is they end up staying silent. They end up quitting. They end up punished or even killed. They can't trust their coworkers. You know, they feel like they can't depend on them if they stand up to it. We need to expand your methods of media consumption. So just think about how many shows and movies you watch and how many of them have black leads, not just one single black lead, but multiple black leads with a diverse cast. How many of them were written by people of color? How many of them were directed or produced by people of color? Follow more black artists. There are so many black artists. Question the representations you see of black people. For the most part, it's been other people having control of our narrative. It's been the presentation of a black person from the perspective of white people. So we need to look to other sources of media and entertainment and art and music and things like that. We need to see a more varied representation of who we are because that's who we are. We're varied. We're not a monolithic people. We all think differently. There are There's a lot we have in common, but no two black people are just the same. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that often happens in media, representation in media. The token is the same. I recommend that people who want to educate themselves review alternative versions of American history for more Mm -hmm. insight on the experiences of Black and Indigenous people. Largely, what we know about history is taught from the perspective of white people telling other white people to tell everybody else. So there are quite a few things that are Inaccurate, slightly inaccurate, completely false. Some of it is just outright propaganda. We need to know what has really happened because that's how we learn from it. And how many times were Black people allowed to have control of that narrative? How many Mm -hmm. times have Indigenous people had control of that narrative? We haven't, and we've been trying to. We need people to ask where political leaders stand on race issues and if their policies and platforms are inclusive. If they never once mention race. That is a sign that they don't see it as relevant to any of the issues. They don't see it as relevant to poverty or unemployment, to discrimination, to any of those things. And Mm. I'm not saying that they should solely focus on that, but that is one of the issues that we face. And we need to learn the different levels of racism and prejudice. It's not just all outright, blatant, aggressive, extremely offensive stuff. It includes the microaggression, it includes the way that we normalize just the way that we're treated on the daily. We don't get to those extreme levels of racism and prejudice having that much power without all of the small ways forming the foundation. Another thing I mentioned was questioning yourself. In what ways have I benefited from institutionalized racism? How differently would the situation have gone if I wasn't white? In what ways am I privileged? What specific examples do I have for my privilege protecting me from consequences or danger? Why do I use this term? What kind of microaggressions have gone over my head? Have I been siding with the oppressor? Why do I hold this opinion? Who taught me this? Why does this make me uncomfortable? Am I getting defensive? Am I expecting one black person to speak for or represent all black people? Am I distracting from the issues at hand? am I getting caught up in a small aspect of the larger problem? Am I allowing selfishness to prevent or lessen my support? Am I actively or passively anti-racist? These are just a few examples of questions that I feel people should be asking themselves, and I will say that I have asked myself many of these same questions. I acknowledge that I have been privileged in certain ways. I acknowledge that I may not have suffered in certain situations, whereas someone with an even darker complexion would have suffered greater than I. We should always be questioning why we are experiencing what we're experiencing and how our privilege affects those situations. There are a lot of people, I see a lot of white people posting on social media right now, giving specific examples of the way that they've been treated by police. And some of them are exact things that black people have been killed for. One of them was an example of what happened to George Floyd. The person who posted this said, I had a $20 bill that was counterfeit, and I just said sorry. They said it was okay. They essentially got a little slap on the wrist, and nothing really came of it. But George Floyd lost his life over that. His Mm -hmm. life was taken over that, over $20. The message we're constantly receiving is, your life is worth less than blank. Less than the feeling of safety of police officers, less than $20 for a business owner, less than the discomfort of a person walking down the street who's part of Neighborhood Watch, less than a lady who wants to walk her dog without a leash in a place where you need to leash your dogs. So at the end of all this, you need to take action. We need you to help us push for specific policy changes. We need to revamp training, increase screening and requirements, Implement clear and universal guidelines for punishment, de-incentivize arrests, incentivize officers to report their coworkers who have done misdeeds, provide more viable resources for those who are being rehabilitated, change the way that officers view, profile, and communicate with Black, disabled, queer, Indigenous, and poor people, and to stop placing their lives on a pedestal at the expense of innocent lives. I understand that putting your life on the line is hard for any job that is dangerous, high risk, any of those things. And I'm grateful for people who are willing to do that. And I want to support those people, but I cannot use that to turn the blind eye to all of the wrong that they're doing. So if you've seen the hashtag eight can't wait, that is eight steps that police precincts can involve in their policies that actually are able to decrease Police killings by up to 72% when all eight of them are implemented. Wow. So, those eight are banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de escalation, require warnings before shooting, exhaust all alternatives before shooting, they have a duty to intervene, ban shooting at moving vehicles, establish use of force continuum, and require all force used to be reported. So keep an eye on the trending hashtags, follow different organizations on social media, listen to Black people, consume Black media, support Black businesses, just try to step outside of your bubble, especially when it is a bubble of privilege. And we need to be able to trust and go to the people in positions that are supposed to protect and serve us. If I'm too scared to call the police officers, they can't help me. We need you to donate, vote, sign petitions, spread awareness online, spread awareness in person, stop letting your fear of divisiveness and exclusion prevent you from speaking out.
1: What are some effects of structural discrimination on people of color? People of
0: color experience harsher punishments across all institutions. That includes prisons, schools, community, organizations, anything. Black people are suspected and punished more often and more harshly than their white counterparts. Black women receive less adequate medical care than white women. Black women are more likely to experience birthing complications, to die in childbirth. Black people are more likely to be misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, or underdiagnosed, undertreated, untreated, to have their pain minimized or ignored, and even be refused treatment. So it's not just police officers that have a duty to help people and use that duty and their power to harm. Black people have higher unemployment rates. If you are a Black college graduate, you are twice as likely to be unemployed than a white graduate, even if you consider the different levels of job availability and demand for certain fields. So that's not just for Black graduates that get a degree in some niche field that has no job opportunity. That includes your STEM jobs, that includes things that are in high demand, white men with a criminal record are more likely to receive a callback for a job interview than a black man with no record. Job applicants with black sounding names are less likely to receive a callback and be hired than those with white sounding names even when they have completely identical resumes. So with regard to these things, it is often blamed on black people. Well, if you weren't so lazy, Well, if you stop committing crime at such high rates, but in fact, the structural discrimination is just further leading to the misconceptions we have of black people. And then the misconceptions we have of black people are used to justify the structural discrimination. This is what we're saying when we say break the cycle. We can't keep going in these circles of having things in place that single us out and exclude us and punish us for the color of our skin and then blame us for having higher rates of all of these things that we're affected by. So if you think of the misconception of absentee Black fathers, that is constantly heard. We see studies that say 70% or up to 70% of Black fathers are absent. But most of those studies use marital status and housing statuses as their cornerstone metrics. They don't often account for fathers who are dead, for unmarried couples who live together, for divorced couples who are both still involved in their children's lives, fathers who have been incarcerated, or federal housing that prevents the father from staying in the home if he has a record. So there are a lot of factors and a lot of reasons that contribute to the way that we view these numbers. Statistics are never just statistics. They depend on the specific situation surrounding that outcome. We see mental health as a white person problem. When people with guns go and shoot up a school, they say, oh no, they were bullied. Oh no, they had mental health issues. They were mistreated. We hear the narrative that they did a bad thing. Yes, but they did a bad thing, but. And I'm not saying that mental health and everything does not play a role in that. I'm sure that it plays a role in many things as it tends to. There's there's already a stigma of it across the board, but many black people go undiagnosed, untreated, and they themselves don't always feel the need to pursue treatment Because of all of the historic struggles that we've had and we've had to endure without proper support systems or understanding their mental states. You know, my great-great-grandmother didn't go from the plantation and talk to a therapist about their feelings. They overcame or they just didn't. They did what they could on their own. And so we tend to continue that same thing. We sometimes see them as weak, you know, oh, after everything we've been to, you got to go talk to some therapist about things. You have to go get medication for treatment. that is seen as a weakness. And it's not just a white person problem. It is a people problem. It is a societal problem. Historically, black people have had to see caricatures of themselves in media. And if you think back, initially, it was white actors in blackface. And even today, I could name a handful of examples of blackface that I have seen in media that I have watched. So if you think of Robert Downey Jr., he did blackface. If you've seen It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, there were multiple episodes with blackface. If you go on Instagram and you see non-people of color with extreme tanning and makeup specifically to look darker and more ethnic, they change their hair, they put on wigs. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to present yourself in different ways. But those people are profiting off of the insinuation that they are a person of color while people of color are punished for how we look. If you draw a character, the default is white. So if you make them black, if you make them overweight, if you make them queer, if you make them disabled, those are all statements. Mm. And I'm not saying that they're not, but if I go outside and wear my hair in an Afro like I have been lately, it's always seen as a statement and not just my state of being. And I'm not saying that it can't be a statement or it shouldn't be, but it, I don't always need to be making a statement by just existing. White people have used the labor of black people while simultaneously portraying them as lazy freeloaders taking advantage of the government's good graces. So if you think of examples of the welfare queen or you know the unemployed dad who just shows up to get money, we have a tendency as Americans to have these marginalized groups that historically have been extremely hard workers. So if you take Mexican people and how hard they work, and we still categorize them as lazy and, oh, they sleep all the time. I wouldn't call my friend lazy who just worked a 12-hour shift at a factory. I wouldn't call my friend lazy who just worked 10 hours out in the hot sun. Those are not lazy people, and we need to stop saying that they are. Mm -hmm. Nobody is trying to freeload. We are just trying to obtain equality and be properly compensated for all of the work that we do. Going back to college graduates, if you are a Black college graduate, you are more likely than a white college grad to end up in a job that is lower paying, that doesn't even need a four-year degree, so you're more likely to end up in a minimum wage job. Again, that does happen to grads of all color, but it is more likely when you are non-white. If you think of the booming weed industry, you see countless people still serving out sentences for possession and selling, while those who are ruling the industry are primarily white men. I'm not saying it's only Black men who are still serving those sentences, but Black men were arrested, punished, charged more harshly than the white men for marijuana-related charges. And I have seen some people that say, well, at the time it was illegal. Okay, but it's not now. So why are they still there?
1: This is KCBP Wesley, 95.5 FM and streaming at kcbpradio.org. You're listening to Women of the Valley with today's guest, Jasmine Woodall.
0: So many of the issues that Black people face are seen as individual problems, but when you add it all up, it has long-lasting effects that can span generations. White people were much more able to buy affordable housing in nice neighborhoods that they were able to quickly pay off, that they were able to pass down to their children, who could then pass it down to their children or they could sell it and move. They had options. They had jumping off points for their own endeavors. So at that same time, black people were denied loans or if they were approved, it would be a much higher rate even if they were a lower risk than the white person because being black increases your risk level for receiving a loan. They were limited to certain areas with other Black people to maintain segregation. There was redlining. They were told that the areas that the Black people lived were less valuable and more dangerous with higher crime and nobody should go there except for the other Black people. So even the ones who did manage to move into mostly white neighborhoods, which of course came with its own set of dangers, even still people moving into predominantly white neighborhoods are constantly made to feel otherized and outcast and feel like they don't belong there but especially decades ago that was an extremely dangerous thing to do and it even still is in it or it can be if you think of being in an affluent white neighborhood and what if the cops get called and you don't look like someone who lives there you could lose your life over something like that so when black people were able to move into white neighborhoods the white people left the houses lost their value so that loan that they were able to get with the high rates In that neighborhood, they moved in, white people moved out, and their investment dropped. In popular culture, there is a lot of white people appropriating black aesthetic to increase their following, which is mostly done by white women. They tan themselves beyond recognition, enlarge their lips and butts, treat their hair to make it appear textured or bigger, adopt African-American vernacular English, or Mm -hmm. what some tend to call Ibonics or a black scent, they utilize slang that was introduced by queer Black people, and they can make a profit off of this Black-appearing identity, while those, all of those things still harm the success of Black women. It wasn't until recently that California decided, maybe we shouldn't allow employers to fire people for wearing their natural hair. And this goes for white rappers who changed their entire personality to fit into this idea of a cool Black person. And I'm not speaking to those who grew up around that and are from certain areas where that in a way is a part of the culture that they were brought up around. So you can see the way that rap music has been appropriated, that jazz has been appropriated, that black style, like street fashion, those things have been appropriated and blown up into large profitable business. But black people are not at the top of it. The creators are not there. So we're not only living in a country that was founded on equality and slave labor, but that has otherized and ostracized us for how we look and how we act, and it celebrates our oppressors. And I mentioned African-American vernacular English, which is often just seen as this, this degradation of English, this incoherent, improper grammar, when really that is just racism and linguistic bias speaking. There are many linguists who study African-American vernacular English because it is a systematic, coherent, rule-bound language that has specific grammar rules. Mm -hmm. It is a unique English dialect. So the way that we view it is through the lens of racism. And when we talk about code switching, that often involves, for people of color, alternating between those dialects. So depending on who you're around, you will switch back and forth. That's not to say they don't know proper grammar, they can't speak correctly, which I usually hear, they can't speak right, which apparently neither can you. Um, (laughs) But that is a specific dialect, so we need to stop viewing it as some uneducated version of English.
1: What is intersectionality and why is it important?
0: intersectionality is the concept that there is overlap between disenfranchised groups, and when there is that overlap, that can make your experience more difficult. An example I always use is if you make a list of every disenfranchised group and you check a box next to everyone you're a part of, the more boxes that you have checked, the more struggles you are likely to face. So if you think of someone who is a black man versus someone who is a black woman the black man has struggles due to being a black man a black woman has struggles due to being black a black person and being a woman and being a black woman so if you add disability if you add mental illness if you add you know a queer identity if you add various cultural aspects that are often marginalized all of those things will likely make your experience more difficult So if you think of the black women during the civil rights and women's rights movements, they overlapped, right? So black women were encouraged to pick a side. So will you side with black men or will you side with white women? At the end of the day, there is no right choice for them. A lot of these movements were advanced by black women, but they're also conveniently erased from the narrative either way. So if you look at queer rights, you tend to see mostly gay white men and and white lesbians who are the idea of representation for that community. When in reality, a lot of that progress was due to the hard work and the risks taken by queer or trans black people. So there's a lot of exclusion in various different groups in any group. There are always gatekeepers. So you have feminists who are also racist You have feminists who are transphobic, who say, who blame trans women for ruining feminism when in fact they are a big reason that we have the feminism that we have today. They are the reason that we have the queer rights that we have today. And there's still so much to be done, but we cannot ignore the way that they have helped those movements and the risks that they've taken and the hurt that they have been inflicted with. As a queer black woman, I see white feminists that are racists. I see proud black men who are misogynists. I see queer advocates who are anti-trans or anti-black and so on. And in every group that I see, in every group of marginalized people, I see them gatekeeping and I see them furthering misconceptions of other marginalized people. And this is why we talk about inclusivity. When you are actively being a feminist, You can't ignore the struggles that happen that are more specific to black women or the struggles that overlap, but affect black women differently. And a simple example of this is, is even in just the portrayal in media. If you want to portray a female character as strong, tough, independent, that may look differently than a strong, tough, independent black female character. One example I hear is with the popularity of, of women cutting their hair short It's seen as this liberation, as this denial of the idea that they need to have long hair and have makeup on. So that is strength in its own way. That same strength may not translate exactly the same to black women. So if you see a black woman with long hair, that may make more of a statement than a black woman with no hair or a black woman with no hair, but it's because it is a choice that they make. I have a lot of people that think, oh, black people's hair just doesn't grow. Black women can't have long hair. So anybody with it, it's fake. And for some reason, if it's fake, it's bad. But white women are allowed to have extensions and wigs and they can play with hair colors and fun things. And it's just a part of fashion. But for black women, it's like we're hiding who we are. So when we talk about intersectionality, it is not only important and necessary, but it is just integral to all of this. Mm. It is required. We cannot ignore the difference that people experience depending on their combination of groups that they're a part of. And we need to make them feel like they're accepted no matter what. I shouldn't have to feel like if I go to a group supporting black progress and civil rights, I shouldn't have to be exposed to homophobia or to transphobia or to to people saying, well you can you can check that out the door. Or you can come and be queer and support pride, but you know, but I don't date black people. Or I don't date Asian men. You see that a lot on applications, on dating apps, where they, people will say in their bio, no black guys or no Asians. And they don't see that as problematic, but that is extremely problematic. Studies have shown that you as a person of color or minority are more likely to match with another person of color or minority because white people don't always want to match with you.
1: This is Women of the Valley with your host, Linda Scheller, and our guest, Jasmine Woodall. In a recent webinar, I heard the injunction, end white silence. How do you interpret that phrase, Jasmine? And how important do you believe it is in the struggle for racial justice?
0: I think that there are a lot of white people that disagree with racism. They say, oh, that is so wrong. We should all be equal. That's not fair. It's not okay. I don't support it. But they're still willing to let it slide as long as they can live peacefully. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now with people protesting, with people standing up and saying no more and chanting in the streets and causing unrest and bringing that attention. It's making them uncomfortable. And so in a way, they put the blame on the people protesting. They think, oh, well, you're causing all this ruckus and I would rather have peace these are also the same people that didn't really have much to say about all of the black murders until property was damaged. So when they did speak out, it was, oh, they shouldn't break things. They shouldn't steal. They shouldn't damage. They're they're ruining the movement. But when we say end white silence, it means you can't just sit there and wait and wait and wait for things to directly affect you before you decide to act. I'm not a homeless person and I, you know, haven't been, but That doesn't mean I'm going to wait until I am to care about their problems. I'm not a veteran, and I will never be, but I don't have to be to care about their problems. I don't have to be white to care about problems that affect white people. I don't have to be the exact person that policies will harm or help, because I know that the choices I make will affect other people. And so when I vote, when I make those choices, and when I act and I participate and I educate myself... I am trying to do it with the lens of helping as many people as possible. So these people can excuse hundreds of years of blatant racism and decades of blatant as well as discreet racism, but it doesn't really matter to them until it affects their personal feelings of comfort and safety. And that is when they say enough is enough. So there are plenty of people, if you saw that video of the 75-year-old man pushed down by the police officers, he ended up hospitalized. And I won't get into great detail, but I see people watching that video and that was a turning point for them, right? It didn't really affect them until they saw it happen to another group that is often mistreated, elderly people. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be an elderly white person. So for, for them, some people saw that and that's when they decided to join in and support this movement. So it's not until it directly affects them that it matters to them. And so this is why we say end white silence. You can't just be silent and sit on the sidelines. And that is one of the unique things about the protests that are happening right now is the level of diversity. I don't want to have to look out there and see a group of only black people defending themselves. I want to see white people. I want to see indigenous people. I want to see Asian people. I want to see the queer community out there. I want to see everybody out there. And that goes for other people's civil rights as well. So you see people calling Black Lives Matter, you know, a bad organization. They're not, oh, they don't care about the white people who get hurt. Who do you think is trying to prevent that from happening? Black Lives Matter. Who do you think defended that man the most? Black Lives Matter and other like organizations. We are disgusted with the way he has been treated. We're not saying that it's only Black people that this happens to. We are saying that it happens disproportionately to Black people. You question, well, why didn't Black Lives Matter start a protest for him? It is also for him, or at least I feel like it is, because we want them to stop killing us. And that means all of us. And the reason it's Black Lives Matter is because we are always told that they don't. This is where people who are white and who have certain positions of power, this is where they need to step in and speak up and act. Use your platforms to amplify black voices and demand justice. These things are not just handed to us by asking nicely, and I'm so tired of having people tell us the right way to do that, because it clearly hasn't worked. And it's especially difficult when white people choose to sit on the sidelines instead of getting involved. So when we say, end white silence, it means you can't just silently disagree. You need to speak up and actively disagree and demand change along with us.
1: What is white privilege, and how does it perpetuate racism?
0: To me, white privilege is that your whiteness doesn't prevent you from obtaining an education or from getting a job. There are definitely other factors in place that can prevent those things, but your skin is not one of them. It's not to say that white people don't struggle because they do, everybody does. Everyone has struggles and there are multiple groups that are mistreated in this country and in the world, but you being white doesn't invite further marginalization and further oppression of you or your family, but being black does. So white privilege is the fact that your skin color is not a negative part of your experience as a human. A lot of people see the absence of white privilege as unfair or discriminatory or even a proof of black privilege because they're so used to having it that once it's gone, it feels like, well, you just took something away from me. If I always get, you know, an extra piece of cake at birthday parties and then one day I don't, I'm gonna wonder what the heck's going on and where's my cake because I deserve that cake. That's rightfully my cake, and it always has been. I always get two slices. But you took it away from me to give it to someone else. Oh, that's not fair. (laughs) We talk about affirmative action. There are plenty of people who see that as unfair and discriminatory, when really the only thing it's supposed to do is make things more fair. But the argument is always, oh, well, I shouldn't lose out on a job because they're going to give it to some less qualified Black person. Which to me always just shows me that you think that it's just impossible for a black person to be more qualified than you. It's impossible for a black person to be more educated than you. You think it's impossible for a black person to have more experience than you. And that is racist and that is prejudice. And that is your assumption of what black people can do and who they are and what they can be.
1: Do you find it surprising that what Baldwin wrote almost 60 years ago is still so painfully relevant today? No, I don't.
0: But I'm sure that there are a lot of people who do find it surprising, especially white people. We live in a country where we have been so convinced that racism is a thing of the past. It's, it's a past problem that it no longer has a tangible negative impact on black people today. You know, they say, well, you were never a slave. Your parent wasn't even a slave. And also, I think a part of that is when people say our ancestors, because it is our ancestors, but it's just a few generations ago. There are plenty of Black people who knew the last slave in their family. Having a Black president or Black police officers or Black people in government positions doesn't change the fact that the system that they and we are all a part of is still at its core racist and overwhelmingly white. So, just because we've been able to push our way into some of these positions doesn't mean the entire structure has changed. That is a problem we will still be dealing with, I'm sure, decades from now. Most of our history is rooted in slavery and oppression. That is this country. And so, in order to change things like that, we are changing the very core of what America has been, of what the United States has been.
1: Jasmine, do you ever get tired of having to explain racism to people who have a hard time seeing it and understanding it?
0: I do. I'm I'm sure a lot of people do. And I know that I am far from the most outspoken person in the world. I am quite introverted. I have a hard time keeping up with social interaction. So I do it, it can be exhausting to not only fight against those people who are racist but also to those who ignore and enable it and in a way that that is more tiring for me because i know i know that if only they could see it they would change it but the problem is getting them to see it they're mm-hmm. continuing to enable it they continue to essentially side with the people who are racist and and they say well i'm not racist but you have to look at where your views are lining up it's one thing to shine a light on injustice and it's another to realize that shining a light on it doesn't make it go away. We all have all these videos of black people being lynched by police officers and by other citizens, and yet those officers walk free. Most of the time they do. And there are many self proclaimed non racists who think that there's always some form of justification. So, oh, what the video doesn't show, or if they hadn't done this, if they hadn't done that, but at the end of the day, that should never have happened it does not matter if they committed a crime and in a lot of these instances they didn't so and we're not saying that to say that only innocent people deserve to live we're saying that to show that it's not anything that we have to do to get killed they say that not everything is about race when it very clearly has been a major part of us history government society and culture This country was primarily founded on racism, slavery, and oppression. And we still strongly uphold that tradition. We still have monuments to slave owners and people who fought for the right to own slaves. We still idolize people that didn't think I was a person. And we say, oh, they were from a different time. But in a lot of ways, it's,
1: it's the same. I hope our listeners will want to learn more about the history and the effects of racism and oppression. Are there specific sources of information that you would recommend?
0: Definitely. And of course, I am just one person, and and I'm speaking from my personal experience and what I am at least aware of. So I encourage you to reach out to other people and continue searching online to help educate yourself. So as far as organizations, of course, the NAACP, Black Lives Matter, there's Color of Change, Showing Up for Racial Justice, Race Forward, Dignity and Power Now, Organization for Black Struggles, Civil Rights Org, Never Stay Silent, Actions Over Hashtags, Reclaim the Block, United We Dream, and countless others. Uh, Some of these are local to this area, but some of them are national and worldwide. So definitely keep an eye out for new organizations that you can help support. They do their best to educate people, to spread resources, and, and do other wonderful things that will help us keep this going, because I am not ready to sit and watch this fizzle out for another few decades. As far as authors, James Baldwin, we have Maya Angelou, Octavia Butler, W.E.B. Bois, Alice Walker, Langston Hughes. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Roxanne Gay, Phoebe Robinson, Ya Gyasi, Toni Morrison, Trevor Noah, and many others. And as much as people try to be well-rounded, there is still an issue of the lack of inclusivity. So I encourage you to not only read straight Black men's perspective, I want you to read queer authors, I want you to read non-binary Black authors, I want you to read female Black authors some podcasts or movies or shows code switch is a podcast there's pod save the people the hate you give is a movie a few netflix shows dear white people self-made say it loud is a youtube channel with a lot of really interesting kind of comic videos there's a black lady sketch show on hbo insecure on hbo she's gotta have it was a movie then turned to a netflix show the way they see us is another show Again, as I mentioned with the authors, don't just listen or watch one type of narrative on Black people. If the only Black media you consume is specifically blatantly about slavery, I don't know. I feel like you should switch it up a little bit and get more variety in there. I want you to check out comedies. I want you to check out political dramas, high school comedy, high school drama. I need you to see how many different types of Black people there are. And there are a lot of things that we experience that overlap because of the way that we got to this country and the lives that we live because of it. But we are a diverse people. So I challenge you to view other forms of media. Listen to the alternative Black musicians. Listen to Black people who do country music. I want you to watch Black tap dancers. And I'm not saying to only do this because they are Black, but to acknowledge the predominantly white lens through which you may be living your life. When we are told black girls don't become ballerinas because we want you to look the same and the other people are white. We deserve to be a part of this society that we live in Mm
1: -hmm. and we
0: deserve a seat at the table and we will continue to demand it. Another Mm -hmm. thing that anybody listening can go to is tinyurl.com slash eight, the number eight, can't wait Turlock for an email template that you can use ready to go to send to our mayor, Amy Bublack. If you follow any of these organizations I mentioned on social media, highly recommend you do. That is a great place to stay informed and to know about protests happening in your area, to learn about injustices happening in those areas, to find petitions that you can sign, to find more information, and they will. it will just further your ability to find other organizations like that.
1: Is there anything else we should do as individuals and as a community to have a more just and peaceful society?
0: I would say to learn how to act and listen and enact change despite any discomfort you feel. There are definitely times where an ally is not seen as this hero 100% of the time. We love and appreciate our allies, and I'm speaking Both as a black woman, as a queer woman, just as a person, as a woman. I always appreciate allies, but just because you are trying to help doesn't mean you're immune to being questioned and to having things that are problematic that you do or say pointed out. Just learn to be okay with not being right all the time and with being corrected. You know, if someone makes a comment not knowing racial origins for that statement, I will tell them about it and I don't expect them to fight me back on it, I would hope that they wouldn't, because that turns it into a problem, even more so. Another thing I want to mention is just knowing that the history that we learn is from a certain perspective, and we need to change the way that we view our history. Also, when when we talk about slavery in a historical context, we notice that you know, white people tend to feel bad. (laughs) And that's understandable. You know, I I would feel horrible hearing about something my great-grandparent did. I would feel bad. That doesn't mean I would sit here and justify my great-grandparent or I would feel like, well, that makes me just like them. I would condemn what they did because I should and it would be wrong. We can't only talk about the slaves and we can't only talk about the heroes. We need a more balanced narrative We need to know that there are differences between the rules and the standard and the exceptions. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: when people talk about poverty and the way that it affects black people disproportionately, a lot of people want to throw out rich black people as like, oh, well, they started from the bottom and they made a bunch of money. So anybody can do it. But in reality, that is extremely difficult to do. So we can't take the exceptions and make them the standard. On the topic, on this specific topic of education for U.S. history and social studies and slavery, think about the way that it was portrayed when you learned about white slave owners, quote, falling in love with their female slaves, because that was not love. It wasn't. They were raping their property. And in their eyes, it wasn't rape because it was property. But they didn't have children with their slaves and do better for those children. Those children were born into chains. And if they were treated differently, they were never treated equally. They may have worked in the house or the kitchen or got whipped slightly less, but they were not equal. They were still less than, Mm. and they were still subject to the horrors of the society at that time who saw them as abominations. That was not love. That was oppression and control and power over other people.
1: Well, I can't thank you enough, Jasmine. This has been such an enlightening and important conversation. I'm really grateful to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Linda. And as I mentioned, this is all from my own personal perspective and my own knowledge that I have, which I understand is quite limited. So this is a learning experience for everybody. I am not gonna sit here and say that I am the authority on all things black. I don't speak for every black person, but I try my best to help move toward change that will help everybody and not just black people. I Mm -hmm. want everybody to have a better life. I want everybody to be seen and heard and loved and cared for and treated equally and not excluded. We are all important. And we need to stand together and demand our civil rights.
1: Well, thank you again so much.
0: No problem, Anna. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: You've been listening to Women of the Valley on KCBP Community Radio, 95.5 FM, and online at kcbpradio.org. This has been Leah Hassett and Linda Scheller. We hope you'll catch us next time on Women of the Valley. Thanks for listening. Our music is Tin Can Trap by Chad Crouch.